Welcome back, everyone. So this week, uh, I'm riding solo. Uh, we hope that you uh, are doing well. I hope that you are doing well, as I am sitting here recording this without anybody else with me. I uh, just wanted to, uh, because things have been somewhat busy and we are um, getting ready in- to enter into Holy Week, I wanted to uh, share with you a presentation that I'm giving at one of uh, the parishes that I work at on breaking open the sacred triduum. Uh, if you go back to probably, mm, I don't know if it was season one or season two, uh, we actually did uh, three episodes, three half hour or so, 45 minute long episodes on each day of the triduum. Uh, but what I wanted to do today uh, is just kind of mash all of these together into one episode, um, kind of a bird's eye view of the sacred paschal triduum, which we will enter into uh, next week during Holy Week. So just a time for a refresher. How can we prepare ourselves for Holy Week? What is the essence of the liturgy? Why are these three days, the the, the sacred paschal triduum, why are they considered uh, the three holiest days of the year? And so we just want to take some time to, uh, I just want to take some time to, to like I said, break these open uh, and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, right? I mean, the church herself uh, provides us with such a beautiful liturgy uh, and beautiful methods and ways of praying, uh, with the liturgy being the top uh, form, right? Participating and praying the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the highest form of prayer that we could participate in uh, as as through our baptismal call, as it is our duty uh, through our baptism to participate in the sacred liturgy. And we, we hear that in the prefaces of the Eucharistic prayer all the time. It is our duty and salvation, right, that we participate in these these great sacred mysteries. And so, as I pull open uh, the the sacred, as we pull open the sacred Paschal Triduum today, like I said, at a bird's eye view, um, I pray that it's uh, just maybe can help quiet our hearts and minds during the, these three days in remembrance of uh, what is really happening and the, the great gift of Jesus uh, what he came to do, his saving work on the cross. And so uh, we'll begin. I first want to talk about for, really quick, <laughs> what is the liturgy? What is sacramental economy? And then we'll dive into uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. Uh, and again, this isn't going to, I'm going to try to keep this uh, not as super in-depth, but more of a bird's eye view. Uh, and as if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you would know that I am uh, a liturgy enthusiast. I love the liturgy, so I could talk on it for a while, but we're going to try to keep things relatively simple, pull things together um, in a way that will be able to help us enter into prayer. So, before we dive into the three days of the sacred Paschal Triduum, uh, let's let's take a look at what is the liturgy. Now, we have also done a, a full episode on liturgy, particularly Kairos and Kronos, the timing. Uh, we pulled it from uh, we pulled it from Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, his Spirit of the Liturgy uh, is what we pulled that topic from. Again, it's probably back in season one when we talked about that, and I don't even remember the name of the episode. But if you scroll clear back to some of our earlier episodes, uh, you would be able to to find that. And so, what is the liturgy, right? We hear this word as, particularly as Catholic Christians, and even if you're Protestants, you potentially have heard the word liturgy and wondering, well, what in the world is liturgy? Why is it important? And so, uh, if we, I want to first look at what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 1067, right? This is what it talks about uh, regarding the liturgy. 
The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind, giving perfect glory to God. He accomplished this work principally by the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrected resurrection from the dead, and glorious ascension, whereby dying he destroyed our death and rising he restored our life. Right. So the liturgy is, first and foremost, it's representing, it's recalling an omnesis, anamnesis uh, of remembering events that have happened in the past. And it brings in what happened before Christ and then his saving death, passion, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, right? So it's it's bringing everything in the story of salvation together, pointing to Jesus as his redeeming work, right? So the liturgy is outside of space and time because God's outside of space and time, right? So the liturgy allows us to go back in time to remember where we were from, where where the journey that we've went through, right? So it talks to me right here, the the wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament. They were but a prelude to the work of Christ, right? So in the liturgy, we remember where we've come from, what is our story, but we also remember where we're going. And it points us to Jesus, right? And his saving work in redemption. And Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph two, this is the document on sacred worship or on the sacred liturgy uh, from the Second Vatican Council. Beautiful document. If you've never read it, highly, highly, highly recommend reading it. So this is the second paragraph of Sacrosanctum Concilium. It reads this. For it is in the liturgy, especially in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, that the work of our redemption is accomplished. And it is through the liturgy, especially, that the faithful are enabled to express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. So in the liturgy, when we celebrate the Mass, when we celebrate the sacraments, particularly when we celebrate the Eucharist, right, um, in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, that the work of our redemption is accomplished. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that Christ came, he died on Calvary, right? He he lived his life, he taught, he died on Calvary, he rose again and he sends into heaven, right? Well, why? <laughs> for us, right? He died for us, right? He takes on our sin, our saving work of redemption. That's what he did, right? So this is what it's talking about. For it is in the liturgy, in the liturgy, especially in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, right? We know that the, the mass is a sacrifice. Why? Because we're representing in an unbloody manner the very act of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in Calvary. Now, we could spend tons of episodes uh, talking about what is actually happening in the Mass, and perhaps we'll do that. Maybe we will. In in the midst of this Eucharistic revival, it might be worth uh, revisiting the parts of the Mass and what is actually happening on a spiritual level, right? Uh, the, The divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, right, is that the work of our redemption is accomplished. And it then is through the liturgy, through the mass, through receiving our Lord in the Eucharist, that we're enabled to express in our lives and to manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church, right? So in the holy liturgy, in the holy liturgy, right? The Father makes possible our present participation in the work of the Trinity, Our greatest work in this life is to offer acceptable worship through Christ and become other Christs in the world, right? That's what the goal of the liturgy is, right? When we participate in the liturgy, the liturgy is meant for us to enter into the mystery of Christ even deeper, 
so that then we can be fed, we can be nourished to go out to be other Christ to the world. It's our baptismal call, right? This is what we're called to in the baptism and our baptismal promises as being priest, prophet, and king. And so in the liturgy, uh, we actively participate in the work of God, right? So the word liturgy, when we talk about liturgy in and of itself, the word in Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God, right? So it's our participation in the work of God. So we participate in the work of God that Christ, our Redeemer and High Priest, continues to work in our redemption in, with, and through His church. You know, this, the liturgy isn't something that we just participate in on Sundays. Rather, it's a way of being, almost a hobby to, right? It's, it's a way in which, and I, I think we've mentioned this on other podcasts, it's a way of being, that we enter into the liturgy in which we participate in the work of Christ, and that Christ participates in and through us, right? So that the liturgy isn't just something we participate in on Sundays, but when we live a liturgical life, we're living in the life of Christ. We're living in, uh, we're living in the, the, the law of the prayer of the church, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of our prayer is the law of our faith, right? Which then inspires the law in which we live. And so when we participate in the liturgy, not just on Sundays, when we truly enter into the divine mystery of Christ and his life, we live it out everywhere we go. So that we can be other Christ to other people, but we go, we refer, we return to the fountain of mercy, to the throne of grace, to receive Jesus in the Eucharist, right? So that then we can go out and participate uh, through works of service, through works of charity, to be other Christ to other people, right? And so there's, you could say in the, in the liturgy that there's this tension. Uh, in which the liturgy holds it, it between the divine and the human, right? Because we, God is divine and we are human. And there's this always going to be this tension because we are not perfect. We are not divine, right? We are human. We are, we are being asked by God to participate in his divine life, right? Which is outside of our humanity so that we might be more fully aware of how present he is to each of us, you know? So what is, is visible and what is invisible, right? I'll just think about that for a moment that God, who is divine, is asking us as his human beings, right, as his creatures, these finite human beings to participate in his divine life. Hmm. Think about that. And that's exactly what the liturgy is. The liturgy is this active participation with the divine and the human. And it does have a sense of tension between it, because again, he is infinite, we are not, right? And so where does the tension come? Well, the tension comes when we are consistently conforming our will to that of Christ, to that of the fathers through the power and working of the Holy Spirit. And so the liturgy, active participation in the work of God, right? In the redemption, the saving redemption, when we offer our sufferings to that of Christ, when we pray for one another, right? When we when we govern our families, right? In our lives to, to that which is order to Christ, Right? When we live out the priestly prophet and, and kingly offices of Christ in our own lives, we participate in the liturgy of God. We are participating in the divine life of, of Christ, drawing closer to him. And so, in, in the liturgical celebration, the church is servant in the image of her Lord, right? She shares in Christ's priesthood. So, I mean, Christ is the primary liturgist, right? 
Christ is is the one liturgist, right? And it's in, through his priesthood, through divine worship, right, which is both prophetic. We hear in the mass, we hear the proclamation of of the the word of God, and his kingly office, the service and charity. So we we go. We participate in the liturgy by the proclamation of the gospel, both hearing it and proclaiming it ourselves, but also the service of charity. We go to be fed with his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist so that we can go out and do service and charity all through his worship, right? And so Christ himself, as I mentioned, is the primary liturgist. All ordained priests, right, stand in persona Christi uh, capitis, right, the head of Christ, the person of Christ, the head leading all of us to an active participation in the work of God, not just in worship, but in service and in proclaiming the word of God and in governing our lives, governing our lives ordered that to Christ. And this fulfills our baptismal call as being priest, prophet, and king, right? So it's a participation in the in Christ's own prayer addressed to the Father in the Holy Spirit, right? And so in the liturgy, through the holy sacrifice of mass, other sacraments, through the liturgical life of the church, right? through the liturgy of the hours, right? When we're praying with the church, anytime we gather and pray with the church, right? We're participating in this liturgy. And so in the liturgy, all Christian prayer finds its source and its goal. The inner man is rooted and grounded in the great love in which the father loves us and his beloved son. When we gather, when we pray with the church, we are gathering in the, the, the service, the great love of the father, right? We're gathering together, drawing close to the Father, to love his Son, right? Through and participating in the salvation in which Christ won for us on the cross. And I mentioned earlier uh, some Latin phrases, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, right? When we participate in the, the liturgy, we are participating in the lex orandi and the lex credendi, which then influences the lex vivendi. The lex orandi is the prayer of the church, right? It's the law of our prayer, okay? And so this needs to be consistent with the law of our faith, which is the lex credendi, the law of believing, right? What we believe as the, what the church teaches and, and what the church has handed down for thousands of years. And so we have the law of our prayer, the lex orandi. So when we pray, we, we need to have faith and confidence that we are praying according to the teachings of the church when it comes to the liturgy. That doesn't say that we can't have personal prayer, right? We are called to have personal prayer and called to have a relationship with Jesus. But when we come together as a body of Christ, worshiping in communal prayer, there is the law of prayer, right? That the church leads and guides us. It's been handed down for years. You could read uh, writings from St. Justin Martyr in the first century and compare it to the, the holy sacrifice of the mass today. And you could see that they were praying the same mass that we are today, right? Like you could see these elements are still the same, even though Justin Martyr lived very shortly after the time of Christ. And here we are in the year 2023, the law of our prayer. And so then we have the lex credendi, the law of our faith, the law of believing, right? We believe that what the church teaches and that influence is our prayer. So we pray as the church teaches us. And then we we get to the lex vivendi, which is how we live. How do we take the charity that Jesus gives us through the sacred liturgy out to our neighbors so that they can know the love and mercy of Jesus? So our lives are influenced and ordered and inspired and strengthened by the law of our prayer and the law of what we believe. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, anything that Jesus teaches, it influences how we live. So the law of our prayer, the law of our faith influences how we live. And so 
in, in, in the liturgy, we're caught up in the Holy Spirit into the Son's eternal worship of the Father, and we are saved by participation in the Paschal Mystery. When we unite our entire being, our entire mind, our entire heart to that of the suffering Christ, the suffering Christ, his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, when we unite our entire being with the entire Paschal Mystery. And the liturgy mysteriously draws us into this participation and makes the Paschal Mystery present to us. So every time we gather for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, we experience the fullness of the Paschal Mystery. And it's an invitation for us every single time we gather for the Mass to enter into His divine life in a very mysterious, mystical way. Uh, Not mysterious in a scary way, but a very mystical way in which only He can do, in which only He can save us and redeem us. And so the whole of the liturgy is the prime means of insertion into the mystery of Christ and the fulfillment of the promise of God's plan for us, right? The whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the seven sacraments. The the Eucharist is the culmination of the seven sacraments, but it's also the sacrament in which grace flows for all sacraments. That's why the Second Vatican Council calls the Eucharist the source and summit of the Christian life. That's where it comes from. That's why in the Second Vatican Council, it was very adamant. They were very adamant about saying, no, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life because all of the grace of the sacraments culminates in the Eucharist, but all of it flows from the Eucharist. It is the source and summit of our lives. And in the sacramental liturgy, the mission of Christ and the Spirit proclaims, makes present, and communicates the mystery of our salvation, which continues on in the heart that prays. So we go to the liturgy to be strengthened, but it influences then the way that we pray. And so all of this, all of this kind of background of the liturgy, it can get lofty. I'm sorry if I got kind of lofty, but it's important to remember, right? We enter into what is called the sacramental economy. And what does the sacramental economy mean uh, for us, right? So now we have this understanding of the liturgy operates outside of time. The liturgy operates outside of our time. But we get to the sacramental economy. You may have heard of salvation economy, and that is the how we fit into the story, the redemption story, right? And so the church was was made manifest to the world on the day of Pentecost by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit ushers in a new era of dispensation of the mystery, right? This outpouring of the Spirit. And now the Spirit is the one that gives life to all things and makes it holy. We'll read that in in the Third Eucharistic Prayer, and I'll get to that in just a second. And so the, the, the age of the church here and now right? The age of the church was there at Pentecost. The age of the church was there since the time of Christ. Christ was forming the church. But during which Christ manifests himself, makes present and communicates his work of salvation through the liturgy of the church until he comes again. And so we hear that the church is not just a building, but the church is the people as well. The liturgy is a means for us to have this encounter with God, but also to go out, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so God acts through the sacraments in what common tradition of the East and the West calls the sacramental economy. And so, God specifically works to us in distributing His grace through the sacraments. So, here's how the divine comes in contact with the finite, with us, with humanity, through the sacramental graces. And so, this is the communication or dispensation of the fruits of Christ's Paschal mystery and the celebrations of the church's sacramental liturgy. So, the sacramental economy is the means, it's the sacramental life of the church, right? So, it's how Christ continues to communicate with us through the sacraments, to bestow his grace and mercy upon us through the sacraments. It's where we can come to that personal encounter with Jesus, who is the dispenser of all grace, right? With his blessed mother, 
with the Trinity, that we encounter our Lord, particularly in a very intimate way in the in the sacraments. In the third Eucharistic prayer, I mentioned this, this is my favorite part. I, I, I love I love anything in the Roman Missal, but particularly I love uh, parts of the Eucharistic prayers and 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 uh, Eucharistic prayer number three. I would argue is one of my favorites outside of the Roman Canon or Eucharistic prayer number one, the very long Eucharistic prayer. That's my favorite, but. This, this part in the third Eucharistic prayer, it reads this. You are indeed holy, O Lord, and all you have created rightly gives you praise. For through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, you give life to all things and make them holy. And you never cease to gather a people to yourself so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. And so from the beginning of time until the end of time, the whole of God's work is a blessing, right? That And because of this, God continuously calls us to himself. God continuously calls his people back to him. And it's through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit that he makes all things holy. And he does this through the liturgy. He does this every time we gather for the holy sacrifice of the mass and every time we gather for the sacraments and every time we gather uh, to pray with as a church. We pray the liturgy the hours, right? When we sit before our Lord and the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, public forms of worship, we are encountering the ongoing participation in the Paschal mystery of Christ. You and I are God's blessings. And from the liturgical poem of the first creation uh, to the canticles of the heavenly Jerusalem and inspired authors, the inspired authors proclaim this plan of salvation as being very vast and divine. And so when we talk about the sacramental economy, we are referring to the blessings in which the Father bestows on us through Christ, through his saving passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, right? His only begotten Son and the Spirit that reproduces the image of Christ in our own souls as His masterpieces, right? So, we have the liturgy, right, which is uh, is how God communicates to us uh, the entire saving work of salvation, the passion, death, resurrection, right? It's a very, it's the mystery, right? That's why it's called these sacred mysteries, right? Because while we can understand them to some point, um, there's still a great mystery to us, still a great mystery to us. And so the liturgy is our call to enter into the divine life of Christ. And we get that through the sacramental economy in which God comes to meet us in the sacraments. And so it, it's that filling that gap of, well, the liturgy is somewhere out there and we're here, right? But the sacramental economy allows us to enter into the sacramental nature of the church so that we can have an encounter with Jesus in the sacraments, um, that we experience his love, his grace, his mercy. So, overview of the liturgy. I hope it didn't go too far, too far over your heads, sorry to make it too, give you too much of a headache. Uh, but then there's also then the sacramental economy, and that's the means in which God bestows his blessings and his grace upon us, primarily through the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the encounter with our Lord in the Eucharist, but through the other sacraments, through communal prayer and the prayers of the church, right? Liturgy, the hours, exposition of the blessed sacrament, right? So those are all ways in which we participate in the sacramental economy of the church. But we also can do that too in our own private prayer, our own private devotions, right? So our entire lives are oriented in the sacramental economy. There we go. Liturgy, sacramental economy. Now let's dive into the Triduum because the Triduum, first of all, back up. Every single time we gather for the holy sacrifice of the Mass, we are experiencing the fullness of the Paschal mystery. Okay? So we experience the passion, death, resurrection, ascension every single time we gather for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. When we celebrate the Triduum, essentially what we are doing is in the church, in her great wisdom, <laughs> the church, in her great wisdom, takes three days the three holiest days of the year, and basically blows up the liturgy, spreads it out so that we can enter more deeply into each part of the mystery of Christ throughout the Paschal mystery. So, in Holy Thursday, now, it, 
we should remember that over the three days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday into Easter, it's one liturgy, okay? It's one liturgy in which we experience the fullness of our redemption, okay? And so, we experience the entire Paschal mystery, and it begins here on Holy Thursday. And actually, on Holy Thursday, we begin at the end. So, we begin the sacred Paschal Triduum at the end with a foretaste of heaven, okay? with the foretaste of the resurrection. So in the Eucharist we have we have proof of the resurrection, right? Like we have proof of what is to come. We receive the heavenly food as we begin the Paschal mystery, right? Because Holy Thursday is also considered the Lord's Supper, the Mass of the Lord's Supper. It's where Christ institutes the priesthood and the Eucharist, right? It's, it's what we, we celebrate. It's uh, Holy Thursday, the priesthood, the institution of the priesthood, the all-male priesthood, and also the uh, institution of the Eucharist. So we begin at the end. We begin in receiving the bread of life, the Eucharist, right? So we begin the Paschal Triduum with this great celebration. And I, if you've never been to a Holy Thursday uh, Mass, go. I encourage it. Find your local parish and go to the Holy Thursday Mass of the Lord's Supper because it's incredibly beautiful. And there's different aspects of the Mass. I mean, we're instituting the Eucharist. Uh, there's also the foot washing, which is also what Christ did at the Last Supper. And then there's the journeying to the garden at the very end. Incredibly beautiful. If you've never been to, go. I encourage, go. And so we begin at the end. What else begins at the end? Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. We are created in the image and likeness of God. We are created in communion with God. When we receive the Eucharist, what is that called? Holy communion. We're in communion with the Lord. So we begin the Triduum by this communion with this foretaste of heaven. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve began their lives in communion with God. And so it's it, it was this communion that he wished to keep throughout history, but we, we know that's not the case because in Genesis chapter three, we hear of the fall. Sin enters into the world and whew, the fall happens, sin enters. God breathes life into Adam and Eve. He breathes life into us. He, he creates this perfect communion with us, one that he wanted to keep. And so in the Holy Thursday, we receive Jesus himself, entering into the most intimate communion that we could have. So before we enter into the deepest, darkest parts of the journey, we start with communion as Adam and Eve were in communion with our Lord before sin entered into the world. And so the meal that Adam and Eve took part in with the fruit of the tree of good and evil is now overturned by the meal of the Eucharist. You can pray with that for a little bit. The meal that caused sin entered into the world is the meal is overturned by a meal that cleanses us of sin. The meal of Jesus himself, and it's Jesus's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven that overcomes sin and death. So we begin at the end, and the end overturns the beginning. The meal that we participate in, every time we gather for the holy sacrifice of the mass, the meal that we begin with in the sacred, sacred Paschal Triduum overturns the meal that brought sin into the world. So we begin with the Eucharist that overturns that sin. The Eucharist, and we go back to that part of Eucharistic prayer number three, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, you give life to all things and make them holy. And you never cease to gather a people to yourself so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. That the Holy Spirit is calling, God the Father is calling us by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, calling us to himself. He's making all things holy so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. You and I are meant for communion. And we know this. If you're married, 
Yes, you're called to communion with your spouse. However, as baptized Christians, we're also called to then be in communion with one another and communion with God. And that's how it was intended to be since the beginning of time. We can see that in scripture communion that Adam and Eve were brought into the beginning between the fall and after the fall, like we experience this exile, fallen communion, broken communion with God. And so then Jesus enters into the picture to restore that communion and the communion that is brought about through him, uh, through him alone in a saving act on the cross, right? He does this through his teachings, through the Beatitudes, through his love and mercy for self and neighbor, for love of God. But he also does it through the Eucharist. As I mentioned, the Eucharist is holy communion. It's holy communion with God, but then the body of Christ. Every single one of us receive the same Jesus at holy communion. So we're being brought back into communion with God, but with each other and a new relationship. And so then at the Last Supper, Jesus institutes the beginning of the restoring communion with the fullness of the Trinity, with the Eucharist, when he institutes the Eucharist. And I say begins because it's not fully consummated until Jesus death on the cross, right? In his resurrection and ascension, he begins this here at Holy Thursday. And so in the Eucharist is made present to us on this most holy night of the new Passover meal. Every time we gather for the holy sacrifice of the mass, we partake in communion of the Eucharist and are drawing ourselves deeper into the communion with the Trinity. So we begin our journey of the sacred Paschal Triduum by going back into communion with the Lord. Just as Adam and Eve were in communion with him before sin entered into the world, before chaos broke out, we enter back into communion with our Lord, with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, before we enter into the deepest, darkest parts of the night with Jesus as he prepares for his death. Something else we also notice on Holy Thursday is the sense of servanthood and humility when Jesus bends down to wash his disciples' feet, a reminder that we are called to servants, to be servants for one another, but also that the the priesthood, because he was washing his disciples' feet as he institutes the priesthood, the vocation of holy orders, the vocation to the priesthood is a vocation of service to one another, to the people of God. And so he's illustrating what does it mean to wash one another's feet, to serve one another, even those we probably don't like. And so here at the feet washing, we see the reality of the incarnation and the mission of what each one of us is called to enter into, that Jesus takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around himself. He bows down, he descends lower than those of the feet he is washing and he cleanses their feet. And so we are called to that same servanthood. We're called to, in our communion with Christ, in our communion with God, we're called to then serve one another. We're called to be those other Christs to other people because Christ came to serve, not to be served. And so Christ illustrates this in this servant mentality when he washes the feet, right? And so, in humility, which means that we recognize our gifts, right? Humility isn't thinking that we're not good at anything. No, proper humility is recognizing the gifts that we have, one, are from the Lord and not from our own hard work. They're truly gifts from the Lord, but recognizing what we are good at, but also what we are not good at. But it also sets aside our prides so that we can recognize our shortcomings and recognize that the only way we can truly serve one another is to rely on the Lord. Right. And so rely on the Lord in his great mercy. And that's what he's illustrating to us here at the washing, that the foot washing. And, you know, when when Christ bends down to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, like, I should be the one washing your feet. And Christ says, No, I like I need to do this. Peter agrees, just as a priest would stand in persona Christi, Capitus, right? The person of Christ, the head. In this moment, Peter is standing, his yes, Peter's yes for Jesus to wash his feet. 
Peter standing in persona ecclesia, in the person of the church, in the person of the church, that even in this moment of confusion and uncertainty, Peter's still kind of like, well, I'm not entirely sure what's happening here. Uh, Jesus compels Peter to say yes, as the call of the church is to serve. So upon Jesus's, or upon Peter's yes to Jesus washing his feet, Peter answers on behalf of the entire church for a call to serve to serve one another, a call to empty oneself as Jesus did and still look uh, for us today as the kenosis, this outpouring of his love and his mercy. And then we enter into solidarity with Jesus in the garden, right? And so at the end of this mass, uh, Jesus is not reserved back in the tabernacle, but added to a different place of repose. He's taken out of the church and he's put into the garden, uh, the garden of waiting, of solidarity, recognizing of what is to come. And we're called to go and pray and wait with him. We're called to be with him in solidarity, just as we're called to be with one another in solidarity. The beautiful act about this liturgy is there's no final blessing. <laughs> after the prayer, after communion, uh, we end in, in journeying to the garden, journeying to Gethsemane with our Lord. So, this is the beginning <laughs> of the liturgy. There's no final blessing. The liturgy does not end tonight, but it continues through the night, through praying and being in solidarity with Jesus in the garden. And then we enter into Good Friday. This is the day that we remember the death of our Lord, the passion and death of our Lord. And uh, there's there's three parts, right? And this is the only day in the entire liturgical year that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is not celebrated. It's not celebrated because we're remembering uh, we're remembering the one death on the cross of our Lord. And it's a continuation of the, the liturgy that begins the, the previous night at the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And this liturgy, the, we often will go to a Good Friday service, right? It's not a Mass. It's not a Good Friday Mass. It's a Good Friday service. It's a liturgy of the Word with veneration of the cross. And so, we begin in silence when the priest and the deacon uh, enter into the sanctuary. They're vested as they would be for Mass, but they're wearing red. And they prostrate themselves before the altar while all others kneel, showing the sign of respect and reverence for our Lord, right? And the sacrifice. And we we do it to the altar because the altar is the place of sacrifice during the Mass. And so, we, we there's this act of reverence towards the place of sacrifice. And so, when the priest goes to his chair, he begins the liturgy. He begins the liturgy of the word with, let us pray. You know, there's there's it, when we do this, there's the sense of eeriness, right? That something's wrong, something's off, something uh there's a, there's a darkness there. We don't begin in song. We don't be, begin in singing or uh, any kind of upbeat music. We, they come in and we prostrate ourselves. We kneel. We begin in silence and then let us pray. And so, it, there is this, this sense of eeriness as we unite our hearts to the suffering Christ on the cross. And so, the Paschal mystery through the passion, death, resurrection of Jesus, God himself has established the great mystery in which we partake in. When we look at to suffer. What does it mean to suffer? Paschal is translated as to suffer. So, the Paschal mystery is to suffer, the suffering mystery. So, literally, it's to be done to. It's also the root of passion, right? So, to be done to, right? That what is being done to Christ, right? We enter into that. And so, Jesus takes the suffering to be done to him for our sake, right? Or to the suffering to be done to us, Jesus takes that on to himself. Jesus takes any kind of suffering that we would have because of our sin that's to be done to us, he takes it on to us or onto himself so that we might not have to experience that very suffering, that eternal separation and damnation uh, for the cause of our sins. And so, it's in this very moment that God is so close to us that we can't even begin to fathom it. Mother Teresa would say that in our suffering, Jesus is so close to us that he could kiss us. How often do we view suffering that way? In the midst of Jesus' death, 
God is so near to us that it is reconciling us, drawing us to deeper communion with him. That's what this this paschal mystery is. It's it's a Jesus taking what is to be done to us because of our sin. He's taking that onto himself so that we can enter into it more deeply, be reconciled, be brought into relationship with him. That is what's happening today on Good Friday, right? That's what's happening, that we enter into that paschal mystery, that depth, that eeriness, that suffering with Jesus. Not suffering by ourselves, suffering with Jesus, giving Jesus our suffering, offering our suffering to him, right? Taking his yoke upon us, taking his peace, his love, his mercy upon us so that he can carry the sin with us. We go through the readings uh, for the liturgy of the word. Um, and so we hear a reading from the prophet of Isaiah uh, with its psalm. And then we also hear the letter to the Hebrews followed by the chant verse before the gospel. And then we hear the narrative of the Lord's passion according to St. John. Right. So Good Friday, we always hear the passion of Christ according to St. John. And so then after the short homily of the liturgy of the word, uh, which is concluded with the solemn intercessions. The solemn intercessions are so beautiful. You can look them up. I'm not going to read them all. You can look up the solemn intercessions of Good Friday, and they are incredibly beautiful. And they're enchanted for the liturgy or for the, the entire church. They're chanted by the deacon um, or a lay minister right at the ambo. And actually, you know what? I'll go through them. I'll read them. There's 10 of them. Here we go. We pray for the Holy Church. We pray for the Pope, for all orders and, de- and degrees of the faithful. We pray for catechumens, those who are going to enter into the church, for the unity of all Christians. We pray for the Jewish people, for those who do not believe in Christ, for those who do not believe in God, for those in public office and for those in tribulation. Those are who we pray for during this most solemn time, during the solemn intercessions. Beautiful. Then after the solemn intercessions, we move to venerating the cross. And while we're venerating the cross, an appropriate hymn is chanted when it's often called the reproaches uh, in which we remember how our sin has affected Jesus and how our scourging, how his, the scourging in which he uh, received was because of our sins. We're brought into remembering the price of our sins. We remember the cost of our sins and what they've been done, like what Jesus had to take on. And so, uh, as we venerate the cross, it's typically met with uh, a genuflection or a kiss, right? Some sort of reverence. And so, usually, um, it's the Eucharist is what we venerate with a genuflection. So when we pass a tabernacle, we genuflect. If you can't genuflect or kneel, you offer a profound bow. Uh, but on Good Friday, the cross takes the point of reverence and the point of veneration. And so uh, we're, we're now, instead of beholding the lamb, <laughs> we're beholding the wood at this point, because the wood at this, when we celebrate Good Friday, the wood is the point of sacrifice. So we're beholding the wood. We behold the wood. And so we focus on the wood of the cross as the saving act that has been done upon it. And then we have the reproaches, as I mentioned, during the adoration of the Holy Cross. And then we end with the third part, which is receiving Holy Communion. So we switch from beholding the wood to behold the Lamb of God, right? Again, there's this constant, even in the midst of this gloom and this darkness of Good Friday, there's the hope of the resurrection. Like we're still reminded of the resurrection because we're an Easter people, right? We're an Easter people. I won't say the A word because we're in Lent, so I'm not going to say the A word, but we're an Easter people. Uh, And so we remember that, that even in Good Friday, even in the middle of us remembering the passion and the death of our Lord, we're reminded of the end, right? We're reminded of the heavenly food. We're reminded of the Eucharist. And so we uh, behold the lamb, 
we get a glimpse of the resurrection that is waiting for us and that's awaiting Christ. Uh, and so we receive Holy Communion. And it's also important to note that on this day, we also receive a mother. We receive our heavenly mother, Mother Mary, Mama Mary, because at the foot of the cross, John and Mary are there, the beloved disciple. And Jesus looks at John and says, behold your mother. And then looks at Mary and says, woman, behold your son. Now we can go into the the whole theology behind the word woman, we're not going to, that's a conversation for a different day, but Jesus gives his entire church his mother and he gives his mother the church. So we gain a mother. That's so beautiful that, that we gain a mother at this time as well. Then we enter into Holy Saturday, which mm, love Holy Saturday. I love the, the liturgy, the hours for Holy Saturday, the office of readings. I just, I love everything about Holy Saturday and the joyful anticipation, right? The weight of waiting. Jesus has died. He's separated from us. He's uh, in the realm of the dead uh, and he's going to to claim captive, right? He's going to claim captive these people that have went before him, right? That they have the opportunity to choose like, yes, Jesus, I, I want to like follow you even though I was born and died before your time, right? So this is what he's doing during this time and we are waiting. There's this weight of waiting in Holy Saturday. And so what I, I really love that this is a prayer from the office of readings and morning prayer. So I want to read it to you. This is for Holy Saturday. All powerful and ever living God, your only son went down among the dead and rose again in glory. In your goodness, raise up your faithful people buried with him in baptism to be one with him in the eternal life of heaven where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. And so when we look at this silence of Holy Saturday, there's this distancing, but there's also this attraction to grow in intimacy, to grow closer with Jesus. And so when we experience this distancing, right? We think of a silent treatment from people that how uncomfortable that is, right? This silent treatment. And it's not that Jesus is necessarily giving us a silent treatment. He's off doing other work during Holy Saturday and we are waiting, but it causes this distance between us that we don't feel like we're in total communion. Like there's something that's off here, but then it's also an attractive for both intimacy. So it's while it causes a distancing, it's also causing us to grow closer to Jesus. And we think that, uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? And it's the same kind of thing that's happening here on Holy Saturday. We have these, this, this, and I, maybe you have this where you have friends or family where you could sit in silence and yet you feel complete, right? Like you feel fulfilled, you know, that you don't have to say anything. And that's kind of also what's happening here, that there's this sense of intimacy in which we're growing closer with Jesus, even in the silence. And so in our relationship with God, there's uh, there's many times in which we feel, feel like we're in the waiting or we're in the silence. And that's what Holy Saturday, there's an entire day that's devoted to this in the church. And it's beautiful because it reminds us that even in the waiting, God is still at work. He's still at work. And oftentimes he's working on things that we can't see or we don't notice. And so in the liturgy, again, same liturgy, we're still in the same liturgy in which we began on Thursday night, right? Because hmm, Good Friday didn't end with a blessing either. So we continue. And so during the penitential rite, we, we hear that the, the priest will say, brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. And there's those moments of silence that's recollecting, right? We're calling to mind, we're remembering our sins, right? In that moment, but we're waiting, we're resting, we're recollecting. So there's moments of silence happen at all times throughout the liturgy after the readings after the various readings right after the homily there's these moments of silence in which we recollect ourselves and we remember we pray we wait same thing during the all day on holy saturday we recollect we pray we wait and we rest to encounter lord to encounter mercy right and so 
a holy Saturday is, is truly a day of silence and waiting and preparing our hearts to receive the risen Lord, right? The resurrection of Christ. And so, I want to read to you actually uh, the rubrics for Holy Saturday. So, you open up a Roman Missal, you open up to Holy Saturday, and you're going to see three points on the page, okay? This is what they say. First one, on Holy Saturday, the church waits at the Lord's tomb in prayer and fasting, meditating on his passion and death and on his descent into hell, awaiting his resurrection. Number two, the church abstains from the sacrifice of the mass with the sacred table left bare, the altar is left bare, until after the solemn vigil, that is, the anticipation by night of the resurrection, when the time comes for the paschal joys, the abundance of which overflows to occupy 50 days, referring to the Easter season, right? Third one, holy communion may only be given on this day as viaticum. So last rites, somebody is dying, they're preparing to enter into eternity, right? That's the only time holy communion can be uh, given on that day until the Easter vigil after dark. And so the church waits at the Lord's tomb in prayer and fasting on Holy Saturday, right? So it should be a day of prayer and fasting. Good Friday's a day of prayer and abstinence and fasting. Holy Saturday should be as well, because again, we're waiting, we're praying, we're fasting, we're anticipating the resurrection of what is to come, right? And so, uh, like I said, we're remembering that we're a resurrected resurrection people, right? So it's not that we are completely lost, but we're waiting in joyful anticipation uh, as to what will happen. And again, we see this tension of the liturgy, that fi- the finite human beings waiting in joyful anticipation for the, the infinite God, the divine to act. Beautiful, right? And so there is movement below the surface, right? I mentioned before, sometimes in the waiting, it doesn't seem like God is working, but oftentimes he's working, actually all the time he's working and we don't notice it. And so Jesus is making a raid on Hades, freeing the righteous souls that have went before him. And so then after his resurrection, uh, Hades, this realm of the dead, then becomes hell, right? And so, uh, it's the realm of the dead, yet it's we're still in communion with the Father, right? So, Jesus goes down to take a raid on Hades to free these righteous souls. There's also a movement in the hearts of not only us, but our Blessed Mother and the Apostles. Like, they sit wondering, waiting, uh, wanting to know what's going to happen. Is Jesus going to really rise from the dead, like he said? Or will be left alone? And there's also then movement, as I mentioned, hearts for us, right? It's quiet. It's almost eerily quiet, We know that something's off, it's different. There's almost this like pregnant pause. So this pause of waiting, this joyful anticipation, like we're waiting and wondering what's going to happen. But it's a time of being still, right? Present to the emotions of the church, allowing them to stir in our hearts. And we experience this until we begin the Easter vigil in the holy night. And we go from darkness and silence to fire and light. We go from eeriness to light. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shed. We often read this passage at the solemnity of the nativity of our Lord at Christmas, but the same holds true in the Easter vigil. We wait in darkness and a new light of resurrected life awaits us, right? And so we begin with the blessing of the fire and the preparation of the Paschal candle outside and we process into a dark church with one single light, the Paschal candle, representing the light of Christ. And as we walk in, the priest or the deacon will chant the light of Christ or Lumen Christi, to which we respond, thanks be to God or Deo Gratia. Three times we do that. And as we do that, we are lighting, (laughs) 
candles for each and every one of us to hold because we are those little Christs in the world, bringing the light of Christ to others. And so we start with one single light and that one single light of Christ is what every single one of us get our light from. That's who we get our light from because we are little Christs by our baptized nature. We are little Christ to go out into the world to share that same light with others. And so part of that prayer when he blesses the fire, he says, and, and part of the, the prayer of the blessing of the fire, it says that we may be so inflamed with heavenly desires that with minds made pure, we may obtain festivities and unending splendor. So everything that we experienced the past two days is now coming to the culmination of the resurrection. We'll be completely fill, full, fulfilled with the ascension. And we are imploring the Lord that our own hearts are now turned from waiting to waiting in silence to being so inflamed with heavenly desires because Jesus is who he says he is. And so we end with the lights. We end with a great celebration of the Gloria and the A word that I'm not going to say because we're still in Lent. Uh, But we do this remembering that Christ has triumphed over death. He has conquered sin and death and this brings us into his resurrection and new life. And so uh, every single time we gather for the mass, that's what happens. What we experience over, the, over those three days of the sacred Paschal Triduum is what happens every single day we come to celebrate the holy sacrifice of the mass. Because God in the liturgy, this great saving mystery through the sacramental economy, through the grace of the sacraments, brings us into an encounter with him and his great love. To experience grace, to experience love, to experience mercy, to experience new life, the hope of the resurrection. And to strengthen us to go out to be little Christ to one another, to serve one another, to bring his kingdom here to earth as it is in heaven. And so I hope that this was a, it was a fairly lengthy, I hope that it wasn't too boring, um, but it gave a bit of an understanding of what is the, the liturgy, sacramental economy, but then also the three days of the sacred Paschal Triduum that we will experience and encounter our Lord. Know that we are praying for you and we, uh, we look forward to joining you again uh, in the Easter celebrations praising God, right? Because we are a resurrected people. We are resurrection people living in the joys and new life of Christ every day. So until then, know that we are all praying for you uh, and we look forward to seeing you soon.